the Grind to Growth to Greatness podcast. The best and brightest entrepreneurs, CEOs, creators, athletes. We'll talk to them all and we'll get the good, the bad, and the ugly on how they made it. Decoding the secrets of success. Grind to Growth to Greatness podcast. Unveiling the path to success. And now your host, Terry Barr. So good morning. It's Terry Barr with uh, Grind to Growth to Greatness, and we have an interesting guest today. We're kind of taking a diversion from our normal guest. We'll call it normal. Our business guest, if you will, are athletes, although this person is an athlete, was an athlete. Once you're an athlete, you're always an athlete. So we're excited to have her. Her name is Joanne Denstedt. I met Joanna and her husband, Kevin, three or four years ago, two or three years ago. They purchased a house that I had listed and then I got to know her story, and I'm, I was so inspired by her story over the last couple of years and what she's done with that story and how she's turned it into something wonderful. It's been a hard road. We're going to find out a little bit about that. But Joanna was, I'm going to let her tell you, but she was diagnosed with stage three malignant melanoma back in, was that 2017, I believe? Is that correct? 14. 14. 14. I guess... Your nonprofit was developed in 17. So I'm going to let her talk to you about that, but uh, I want to welcome her in, Joanna Denstedt. And she, we're actually in her building over here in Camp Hill. She, her and her husband and her staff just moved into this building about a year ago, and they're very excited. They're providing cancer community services, and we'll get into some of that. But welcome in, Joanna. I really appreciate you being here. And let's get right into it. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm yeah, to share. Very good. In fact, when I talked to Joanna, I said, "Hey, uh, I reached out to her. I said, are you, are you interested in being on my podcast and sharing your story?'" She goes, "Oh, absolutely." So she's she likes to share her story, and um, I'm not sure I would be that person. It's such a difficult thing, I think, to do, and yet she does it with joy in her heart and um, helps a lot of other people. So I was. I was really excited when she said yes, and we have, interestingly enough, we have a bunch of different friends that uh, we know, and uh, they all have the same thing in common, so we'll, we'll kind of get into some of that. So, Joanna, like I do with all of my guests, we want to really talk about you, your story, generally in three parts. Where'd you grow up? Tell me about that. Tell me about what your youth looked like and how you got into the central Pennsylvania area. And uh, just tell me a little bit about you and your family to start off with. All right. To start off, I, well, I'm not, believe it or not, from Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. <laughs> but now I might as well say I am because I've been here as long as I've been anywhere else. I read St. Louis. Is that right? Yes. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, one of six kids. Yeah. I came out to central Pennsylvania to attend Messiah College because I wanted to play sports in college. I played field hockey and lacrosse, and I was looking for a Division three school where I could play both. So I packed up as the second oldest in my family, said goodbye to all my people, and was dropped off a thousand miles away out here at, in Grantham. Grantham, PA, home, <laughs> home of Messiah College. What are they, the uh, Hawks? Is that right? The Falcons. The Falcons, yes, yep. the Falcons. Yep. So that's how I got here. How how in the world did you choose Messiah College from a thousand miles away? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I had family that had played tennis at Messiah. It was from Philly. So I had the little bug in my ear. It was really looking at schools. I was really athletic driven. I was really driven by sports and where I could go to perform. I wasn't looking for a Christian school. I wasn't looking for a small school. I was really looking for a great athletic program. And they were known all over the nation for their athletics. And then when I was deciding between divisions, I realized that I could do both of the things I loved instead of choosing one and going to a higher division. So I was that crazy person that did both. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Now, uh, and what I read now, of course, I read most of what I read was it was public information, but I did some research on you and you said uh, studied criminal justice and sociology. I mean, I like to tell people I majored in athletics and then on the side I studied some. I think a lot of athletes do that. I have a college son as well. And uh, as is one of the questions that I had for you before we got into what we're going to talk about is because I did read that and you mentioned it just now is for a lot of young students, a lot of young people, that sport life, we'll call it a sport life because you've done a couple different sports, becomes an identity. Could you say that maybe that was something that happened with you as a young person? Yes, for sure. And it's crazy to look back now at how all along the way my athletics were training me for the marathon that I was going to have to actually run with my life. And I look back at major hardships I had through athletics, different different adversity, different communities, all, all kinds of different things that I went through through all of those years training me for where I am today. I feel like everything that you go through is not purposeless, but for sure when you're an athlete and you know how to do that daily grind and perform at that high level and train for that competition that's going to come. Where I am now, I can look back all those years later and see how that was playing a huge role in preparing me for what I was going to have to actually walk through. So staying on that point a little bit, was that all positive for you? And the reason I ask that is I use my son as an example because that's all I have to look at. And I was a college athlete. For me, my identity was the sport that I played in college. And, and I was kind of like you. I, I majored in baseball and tried to study to get through school kind of thing. But it did prepare me. Sports, I agree, prepares us for life. But did you have a life balance there? Did you feel like a balance there was, was pretty good for you? I mean, yeah, I, I was so passionate about everything that I did. I'm a 110% kind of person. I'm, I hit the gas pedal and I go, I don't take things slow. Yes, it was snowed yesterday and you met me at the door before I even got inside. She was opening the door and saying, hey, get in there. So, uh, Yeah, so like that driven personality in me really helped. So was it the athletics training me for that or was that always my personality? You know, I can look back now everything that I've been through and see how. Some of that's just our DNA and how God created us. And then it's finding those gifts and abilities that you have and where to put them and plant them. I mean, it maybe was all unicorn and rainbows until I got to college. And then I, my story started early on with injuries in 2002 when I had my first knee surgery. Was that in high school or was that college? At Messiah okay. in my field hockey season. And that was super hard because my goal was to get and arrive as a college athlete and then be able to perform. And then all of a sudden, when all that's taken away from you and physically you're met with really something that you didn't want, didn't prepare for, that is when my story 
really started to change is when things actually got difficult, not when things got easy. So I went through a series of really difficult injuries throughout Messiah. I had five knee surgeries before I was done. I mean, I had a couple after I graduated, but I continued to play through surgeries, rehab, PT, preseason, repeat over and over again for two and a half more years until I was finished there. But through some of that is where I really learned where my strength was going to come from. Yeah, I think that's an interesting part of your story. And I, and my son went through something similar. He had three season-ending injuries, and he is he is like yourself. He's driven to a fault. And I think a lot of that comes from those periods of times, you know, and the Bible talks about learning, learning in the valleys. And uh, I'm just amazed that people that have the internal fortitude to push through some of those things, whether it's injury or illness or what have you, but that's interesting. So you graduated from Messiah in 2004 mm-hmm. and you had a social or a criminal justice degree. I did. I had a degree. I was, you know, I had interned with the Carlisle Police Department. I thought about going into police work, probation work, graduated, and then needed two more knee surgeries that summer to fail a bunch of stuff when I was done. And physically, my body from pushing through for the last four years just needed a break. Yeah. So I realized that I couldn't get in. You were going to go chase around. The- <laughs> I was not. I wasn't going to do anything for a little bit. So I actually started coaching at Messiah, the women's lacrosse team, with my coach there. And then I was nannying some for some doctors that had a real different schedule so that I could get enough hours in and then I could get on a bus and go travel with the team. So I started doing that and I just was passionate about giving back to the program that had given me so much, but also just about influencing um, and discipleship and mentorship with young female athletes. So that's where I kind of found a niche and started doing that, got married to Kevin that year after school. Oh, so you got married to Kevin, then you meet Kevin at Messiah then? I met Kevin at Messiah. All right. He was a lacrosse player. Yeah. So we got married that year after school. That changes everything. And that changes everything. He had a great job. I kept coaching and then we stayed in Mechanicsburg. Here we are. (laughs) So you became the Mechanicsburg implant. You're here. You're at school. Life is good. You get married, what, 2005. Uh, I know you have four children. Yep. Three girls and a boy. Is that that correct? So when did daughter number one, is she daughter daughter number one? When did she come along? We were married for two years and then our oldest, Rose, came along. Yeah. Um, And then we had, yep, four right in a row. So Four right in a row. Yep. Get it out of the way so you can grow up together and do things together. I I love that. I love that. Now, life was crazy. They were all about two years apart. I was still coaching and I was home. Kev was working. Yeah, life was full. I was anxious young mom. I look back at pictures now and I'm like, I don't know what was harder to survive cancer or that. That was. I I read your Facebook page. It says CEO at mom. (laughs) And that's (laughs) with four little kids like that. I I imagine it can be quite the effort you put out. So you have your four little kids. You've been married about 10 years, I guess, not eight or nine, 10 years, generally speaking. Tell me about that day. That day. What do you call that day? Well, I know a lot of folks have their own little. I mean, that's the phone call day with cancer. You say that's the day you got the phone call. Like everybody has experienced that day that's gone through cancer when the doctor calls and you just, you know what they're going to say. I knew what they were going to say. I knew before they called me. My little boy was 15 months old and then my girls were three, five and seven. Crazy story that morning. We had a big SUV and I just had decided 
it was time to be a minivan mom. So this is a great story. This is where perspective hit me like a brick in the first 24 hours of the phone call. So I decided I was going to be a minivan mom. And I actually got the phone call while Kevin was trading in our big SUV for a minivan. And I like to tell young moms the day you got your minivan was not as bad as the day I got mine because I got cancer in a minivan in the same day. I can see that. But we survived the minivan and cancer. So here we go. But I had had a mole removed off my leg that summer and it just, it looked different to me. I had a great dermatology team at Hershey because with all my pregnancies, I had crazy rashes. And so I was with the head of the dermatology department at Hershey. Again, looking back at all the little ways God was carrying me before I even knew. Yeah, that's not an easy department to get into when if you're a new patient either. So the fact that you were with the head of dermatology already is already. pretty amazing. Yep. And I was working for, remember how when I was coaching, I was working for two doctors, one of which was the one of the head scientists in cancer research at Hershey Hospital. Mm. Again, was he was the first phone call I made after. So when things like hard things happen in your life and you can look back and see all these little details that are just making too much sense. This was this was not an accident for my life. So yeah, I had had the mole removed from Hershey. They called and said that it was melanoma. So at first I had the tumor then removed out of my leg and I had a sentinel node biopsy. For those that may not know what a sentinel node biopsy is, can you kind of get to explain yeah, so with several cancers, one is breast cancer. That's where you hear about it the most. When the tumor is large enough by whatever they're measuring it, that there's a sense that it may have, may have metastasized, they go and do a nuclear test for what sentinel node, what lymph node would be the first to receive the cancer if it had metastasized. So they do that test in a lot of melanomas, one of the cancers, that if if the tumor ha- is large enough, they go ahead and test that to see if it had metastasized. So I had that surgery at the end of August and was just hopeful for good news. But again, I wasn't surprised. I had a sense that God was doing something in my life. So about 12 days later, I got that phone call again that said the cancer had metastasized into my lymph nodes. It was in the sentinel node, and then I had a surgery to remove all of my groin lymph nodes in my left leg. So that was that was a pretty big surgery in the hospital for a couple of days, big incision up, up my leg over my groin to remove all of the lymph nodes in there. After that, they said that I would have a pretty intense year ahead of treatment. At the time I was diagnosed, and a lot has changed since then, Remember my doctor saying every five years that you can survive cancer is everything's going to change. So you just have to take it in little chunks at a time because research is changing so much and people are living so much longer. So I went out to Penn actually in Philadelphia and met with the oncology team there. They have a melanoma research center at Penn. One of the top doctors in melanoma in the whole country was an hour and a half away. So for me, that was a no-brainer that that's where I was going to go to. So I traveled out there and that's where I did my treatment. So I did treatment at Penn for the next nine months. Every Tuesday, we drove out to Penn. Mm -hmm. Another blessing that it was this close, I suppose. This close, I mean, it could have been further. I know that we have a a mutual, at least acquaintance, that I think they went out to Houston once a month and 
Yeah. So it's, it's nice to have that. Let me go back just a little bit back to the day that happened and the emotions obviously that you had were fairly resolute, but people will react to, to those things differently. How did your, how did your husband, how'd Kevin respond? I mean, your kids were small enough, obviously, maybe they didn't understand it all, but they didn't understand. Tell me about the, yeah. Tell me about that, how that dynamic went with Kevin. I mean, Kev's so steady. He's always been the calm to my storm. So I feel like in those moments of your worst stress, kind of who you are really inside is what comes out. (laughs) So I had a very steady supporting partner that was willing to come alongside of me and be that calm in my storm. You know, I remember like I said, I'm one of six siblings. So on that day, I'm I'm thinking, I got to call all my siblings and tell them. Yeah, hey, get guys, them up to speed. I have cancer. I remember calling my older brother that afternoon and telling him what was going on. And he, he said to me what was so offensive at the time, but what has changed a perspective in me for, for everything I've gone through since. Joe, you are so small and God is so big. He just said, let God work and see what he does with this. And in that moment, you know, maybe it sounds offensive to some, but I thought, gosh, she's so right. Like God is so much bigger than this little thing that I'm going to do. Like he's so over this whole huge entire thing. So there were little conversations like that, that just were little plugs of peace all along the way that really calmed my nerves and I mean, I could talk for hours. I I wrote a blog every day. I mean, there were so many little things that happened. That was God's confirmation that this was the call upon my life, that this was not a mistake. No one was surprised but me that he has has a plan for my good and his glory in the midst of this. So I think you and I would definitely be in the same church pew. <laughs> yeah. But for those that hear this interview— to hear you say, this was without a doubt God's plan in my life. And to hear you say that your brother said you are so small compared to what God's doing in this in your life and every and, and the world. What do you tell people when you say something like that? And and I can I can have friends that would recoil at that. I understand it and I yeah. and I agree with it. I can't, I probably wouldn't say it to you. But I, if I heard you say it, I would say, yeah, you're right. You yeah. Know? But what do you say to people that are listening to this going, what is she talking about? Yeah, it's hard. It's so hard. But here's the thing. Like, this is what I say with what I do now in, in a cancer organization. Like, there is nothing that makes you think of eternal things more than a diagnosis where you're looking at what the end of your life might actually look like. So when you get hit with those big picture things. Like I'm not talking about a broken wrist. I'm talking about looking at my four little kids in the face and saying, I don't know how much longer I have here. So where am I going? And what is this life for? What is the purpose behind this? Who is in charge of this? And then you can decide, like, this is what I tell people. You can choose joy in the midst of the struggle, or you can fall apart right there. But if you've got five more years on your life, And it's measured, are you going to, and here's my personality, right? You got to buck up and do what's ahead of you. I mean, I had so many people that would say, how did you do that? And I'm looking at them like, I didn't have a choice. It's not like, I woke up one day and I, I got told I had to do cancer. That was what I had to do. 
So could I have fallen apart? Could it have been a choice to hide in my bed? Like, okay, this is the end of me. Or is this just the beginning of something beautiful that's about to happen because of this, because of the difficulty in my life, not because of a life without that difficulty? So where does my faith and my hope come in to that? Well, I mean, if you don't find purpose behind that, then you're not going to have anything that drives you forward to survive something like that. And so my encouragement is that there's always hope in the midst of your struggle. God is always doing something that you can't see. He's always doing, I think John Piper says, 10,000 things that you can't see in every moment of your life. So are you going to trust that or are you just going to fall apart and trust that the universe just exploded and you're just a part of the downfall of like, no, I had to make a difference. This had to be something. I had to survive this and I had to do something with it. I think some would say, again, I, I'm not trying to be the devil's advocate. Maybe I am a little bit. Some would say, well, that's just the kind of thought you need to survive. You know, that's not reality. Your organization, I want to talk a little bit more about that, obviously, but all of those things packed into your you know, from day one through starting this organization, just it seems to me that it was a almost a schedule of things that happened that got you to this point. And for you to talk about, you know, all the little things that fell into place. I use the example to my kids. I have two boys that live in Arizona. They're both adults. And I say that I look at God's work as the backside of a rug. If you look at the backside of the rug, any rug that's put together or woven, it's all these, these pieces of string and anything, whatever it's woven out of, they're going all different directions. And maybe you can see a little bit what the pattern's going to be on the front of the rug, but it's all over everywhere. You can't make sense of it. And then when you turn that rug over, it's this tapestry that goes, oh, now I understand. Now I see what he was doing. And we're not always privy to that work. Right. You know, but we're, we're privy to the back of the rug most of the time. Right. What in the world is he doing? I, I'm supposed to go there and he's going there. And I tell my kids, lots of times you're suffering. It's not for you. Okay. It's for somebody else. So um, how do you feel about that as you kind of, you went forward and all those things happened to you, all those different directions. Tell me about the whole of that and how you ended up coming to Yeah, well, it's interesting that you say that because that was, like you said, I mean, it was not easy at all. It was Mm -hmm. very difficult. I had four little babies. I mean, we hired a nanny. I had family living with us. I had a house cleaner. Like, it was like daily grind survival for that year. And then a lot of years of recovery. But like you said, there were things that started to fall into place. I mean, I could talk about the little details forever. I tell people my greatest testimony is just to come spend 24 hours with me. And then I don't really have to say a lot. And you can see a lot of what has happened by God's grace. But I'll talk about the package in a minute. But I I was out at Penn one day. Gosh, it was so overwhelming. You go out to this huge oncology hospital. You know everyone sitting there is there for cancer. And I, I mean, it took a lot in me to have ownership that this was actually for me. Like, okay, I'm a cancer patient. I'm supposed to be here at the moment. I'm supposed to be here. These are my people. This is for me. This isn't for someone else. I'm not coming in for my mom or whatever. Like, I am the 34-year-old young mom walking into this place for me. 
But I remember a day very specifically, like you just mentioned, I was sitting there looking around and I mean, not audibly did I hear, but God said, Joe, look around this room. You are not here for you. You're here for me. You're here to bring hope to this hard place, to encourage these people to bring life where there is none. You're here to be a voice to these people, to love them. They are your people. What a wonderful urging. I mean, I'm not often hearing, you know, the voice of God, but I hear his urging on things. What a blessing to hear him urging you and to give you that thought in the midst of that. I just find that amazing, astounding. Yeah. I mean, I just knew after that moment, leaving the hospital that day, that, that this was where God was calling me to be. It was, was not a mistake. These were my people. I was going to do this with them, alongside of them, and now I'm still doing it every day. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. So let's kind of transition a little bit into where you are now. Obviously, you're a survivor. I don't know what you call yourself. Some people, you know, I had cancer. I don't have it anymore. Therefore, let's move on. Or I'm a cancer survivor. I, what do you, how do you look at yourself? Well, melanoma is weird. It's a weird beast. They will never say, Joe, you've been cured. For me, it's no evidence of disease. So I still go to the doctor all the time, labs all the time, scans, pen, Hershey. I'm still watched like a hawk, which, you know, that's a blessing too, because that helps with my anxiety. So we just go through chunks of time calling it no evidence of disease. And I hope to be no evidence of disease for forever. Do I feel that I'm healed. Some people ask me that. Yes, I believe God has healed me, but there is something super unique about the cancer that I had to experience compared to others that I don't have a freedom of saying it's over. They cut it out. I don't have it. Yeah, I have this like when I work with people like I do every week, like there's a sense of me that gets what they're going through because you're never too far away from that first day. So... Going into this interview, I'm like, okay, I, there's a certain sensitivity. I have to have this. I don't know what everything's called. I don't know what you call it individually. I don't know how you own your own existence like that. And so forgive me if I say something that's insane. I don't mean to. There's a certain sense of anxiety. Maybe that's the wrong word, but you say, you know, all the, all the, the tests and the things that I go through on a quarterly basis, whatever it is, give you a sense of peace. Other than that, I mean, I really want to hear about your faith. I want to hear about how your faith, how your faith unrolls in your situation. I mean, obviously God's a big part of your life from what I've read and what I understand, but tell me about how, what role your faith and what the Lord plays in, in this whole process every day. Obviously this is an everyday thing. Yeah, it is an everyday thing. So way back with one of my first knee surgeries in college, I chose a life first that is 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, that says, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self was being renewed day by day for this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Big definition for faith, right? I thought at the time, yeah. going through that really hard knee surgery, yeah. that that was my wasting away, preparing me for an eternal weight of glory. Yeah. And little did I realize that that would play out in a huge role later on in my life. I mean, I feel like faith isn't looking ahead 
to where you can't see God, but it's looking back to see how he's been faithful all along. And that is going to prove that he's going to be faithful in the future. Yeah. Faith is not blind. You know, faith is evidence-based. I think if we look, I think if we're, and for faithful people, we look, like you said, we look back, we can see evidence of him working and it couldn't be anything else. So on a daily basis, obviously God plays a big role. I wrote down some of your quotes from your website and other places. Uh, One of your quotes was, I'm passionate about people, relationships, loving others, and walking through pain and suffering with those hurting. Tell me about that. Yeah. I mean, when you get that phone call and your life, as you know, it becomes fragile and momentary. You know, it's not that that's different for me or anybody else. I did have to tell myself, like, you could get in a car accident tomorrow and your life would end before mine. But I had been told of the fragility of my life. And when you're hit with something like that and you have to think about eternity, I mean, I did. I looked around at my babies and I thought, all right, like my husband's going to raise these kids and I'm not going to be here for it. I mean, you have to, for me, I had to actually approach reality instead of hide from it. So walking through some of that and unpacking some of that reality in front of me, like really makes you weigh what you're here for. But it also like, Philippians 1, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Like I had to realize if I'm going to be here, I'm going to live for Christ. And if I die, that's gain. So if you hit that point in your life where you're looking at death in the face, like you have to realize that that's a victory in itself. And so I knew that I, at that point in my life, was prepared for whatever was to come, the victory in death or staying here And you know what? At the end of the day, I don't know what was going to be harder. Like when you're, this is something that, you know, I've had to unpack through therapy for years. Like when you're ready and you're at the end of, and you have to be semi-content with, and then God asks you to stay and do his work and it's going to be really hard. I don't know. I've struggled with that a lot. I've struggled with the call upon my life. I didn't think I'd go into cancer ministry. I didn't think that Tell me about tell me about that struggle. Why you struggle with that? I mean, the battle was getting through cancer, right? Yeah, that, that was the big one. And mm-hmm. then, like, you're not sure, and then all of a sudden, God says, "Okay, boom, you're disease free," as you call it. Now I've got this whole thing in front of you. Yeah, like, tell me your mindset in that moment. How did you go from ah, I can be a mom again, mm-hmm. but I've got this nagging suspicion that God's got something more for me. How, what, what happened in that moment? Tell me about how you, you work through that. Yeah. It, it, was, it was hard to work through that. You know, he, a lot of us are going to experience really difficult things in our life. And that difficult thing is going to be a trajectory change for what comes next. You are never, I say, a lot of people say with cancer, before cancer, BC, after cancer, AC. You are not who you were before. You never will be. And I think that that is true with a lot of trauma. I'm the same Joanna. My personality is the same. Nothing has changed, but it it changes everything about the way you look at life. And so walking through that year and ex- experiencing what my family experienced, we were not going to be the same as we were before that. And I was open and willing with a loud yes to do whatever God placed in front of me for a however many moments that I had left here. And I think some of that was, again, that's my personality. I, I get frustrated when pastors just throw out the, just 
say you'll do whatever God wants you to do with your life. I'm like, well, if you just say that, you better be prepared. Yeah. <laughs> because you don't know what you just said. Right. And when I said, I don't know how much time I have left here, God, but use my life for purpose and for your glory. And I'm going to do whatever you have with this. Mm-hmm. I don't know. He, it's big. It's big. It's yeah. heavy. It's big. I'm not sure people understand that in a lot of ways. I know that, you know, God makes a lot of promises to us in his word. I mean, a story comes to mind. My daughter-in-law was not a Christian. She was not my daughter-in-law either when my son and her were dating. But my son came to me and said, I, she's not a Christian. I'm not doing the right thing. What do you think I should do? I said, you already know the answer to that. You're not supposed to marry somebody that's, you know, not supposed to be unequally yoked. That's not my decision, son. This is something you need, you and God need to work out. So a few days later, he, he broke up with her. Well, in the midst of the next three or four weeks, she would call me because we had a decent relationship. And she would say to me, because I go to church with Brighton because I know it's important to him, but I didn't grow up with this. I don't know who God is. I don't know anything about this. And she's devastated. She's crying and all this stuff. And I said to her, listen, amongst other conversations, I said, I can promise you because God promises me. If you get on your hands and knees and you ask him to reveal himself to you, he will. He's going to. Like th- That's the one thing I can promise you that will happen. Mm-hmm. How can you promise me? Because God promises it. And the story that ensued after that was, it's for another time, but I, I'll tell you off whatever. But the story that ensued was so amazing mm-hmm. and so God-related that she called me and she said, why has somebody not told me that I can have a personal relationship with the creator of the universe? That was what she told me. Mm. Why didn't somebody tell me this? And she was as excited as I've ever seen about somebody that God knocked on her door Mm. and she accepted. And the long story short, she got saved while my son was back here. Mm-hmm. He, she came to visit. They got reunited. They got married, you know, six months later, and the rest is history. But all that to say is that I'm always amazed when God says something or promises something you can always depend on. Mm-hmm. And that's a little example that's happened lately. And I, I, I think to myself, you have to be careful what you ask for, mm-hmm. because God is going to use you if you're willing and you're and you're ready. Mm-hmm. He's going to use you. He's going to mm-hmm. send you somewhere, or maybe it's right here or whatever. So yeah. that story you tell yeah. is indicative of you know being wide open for for what He has for you. And I'm yeah. I mean, if you look at all the faith heroes, if you look at people in history who have done substantially amazing things in their life. Often the start of that comes out of suffering and something really, really difficult. Almost always. Find someone that that's not their story. I want to meet that person. It's not there. It's it's in the trenches where you are beaten down and broken and there's nothing left and you cling to Jesus that things start to change and happen. Refined by the fire. Refined by the fire. Yeah. In our weakness, he is strong. This episode of Grind to Growth to Greatness is brought to you by Terry Barr. Distinctive Real Estate. 
advising families across Pennsylvania and Northern Virginia for over 15 years. Visit the website at terrybarrealestate.com. So you turned your mindset, you survived cancer, you're clean, you're asking the Lord to show me what you want. Lord, I want to, I want to do whatever you want me to do. How did his radiant hope come into existence? What, what prompted you? I know there's a story. Yeah, there's story. Like, so things started happening actually that year. Like I told, I told you one of them, I felt very much called into something happening. So there were several things, but right after my big surgery, I was struggling physically, emotionally, everything, as you can probably imagine. And, you know, I had four little kids and a super great community. I mean, we had our preschool community. We had our awesome neighborhood. We had our church. We had our friends. We had, I was the young mom with cancer and everyone and needed help and everyone was helping. So when there was a meal dropped off, I knew who it came from. When there was a card in the mail, I knew who it was signed by. One day, an anonymous package showed up on my doorstep that November of 2014, and it was anonymous. So here's where my criminal justice background comes in. I was like, who is this from? And I have to find out. I need to thank them. So I did some research. I got the little the postmark on it. The return label had an address in Parma, Ohio. So I found out from the post office the name that went with it, and I Facebooked stalked this woman, Jenny Duncan in Parma, Ohio. And I said, this is going to sound really weird, but I think you sent me something and you must be like an Etsy company. I don't know. Cause it looked like yeah. Etsy package to me. Oh, it's sitting right over there. Why did I save it? I don't know because I knew there was something significant yeah. about it. Yeah. So it is place those monuments. It is. There you go. It is. I love it. So she responded to me right away. How did you know it was me? You weren't supposed to know it was me. And she just said, I've been reading your blog. I heard your story. It was passed on of a friend of a friend of a friend of a friend all the way to Ohio. And she said, I couldn't bring you a meal and I didn't know what to do. So my parents and my coworkers just made this package for you and we prayed for you and we tracked it. She said, I knew the moment that it showed up on your doorstep and we were all praying in that moment. And I tell people that's the day that the vision for Radiant Hope started when a stranger states away who didn't even know me made a choice to step into my pain and encourage me. And my immediate thought was, why am I not doing this for others? You know, it's such a, that in itself is such a representation of Christ stepping into our pain. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He is, he's not on the outside. You know, he came, he stepped into our pain. He died on a cross and he was someone that lived our pain with us. And so that's, that's an interesting story because the way you say it, someone actually stepped into my pain mm-hmm. and just wanted to help. And I, it's, I don't know, that's an interesting analogy, but. Yeah. So I, I mean, right away, I just was like, I, I need to do this for people. I need to encourage people. So many people are going through so much difficulty. So some friends of mine and Kevin, of course, being super supportive. I remember my mom was maybe the least supportive. That was like, can you just fight cancer right now and not try to save the world? (laughs) But there's something about when you're in that, like for me, one of my gifts is encouragement, like to use your gifts and to go outside of yourself. Like that started giving me life. 
I started writing notes to people, taking things to the hospital. When I went delivering them, I would pray with people. I would encourage them. I would give them a little water bottle. And then we started making these boxes and we would drop them off on people's doorstep. We would hear of someone else who was going through cancer or whatever. And so I remember it was like the somebody wrote a check to us and gave it to Kevin. And he was like, oh my gosh, we're not taking people's money. Like, <laughs> like what are we doing? Are you going to do something with this? Or like, what's happening here? Because people were like, wanted to help what we were doing. A little bit of a pay it forward, like encouraging people in their heart. So that's when we just were like, we're going to start a 501c3 and we're going to start sending care packages to people experiencing cancer. And I knew from my life that I was going to be in the hospital a whole lot more and that I would just take things to the hospital. I'd work with the hospital, mail things. And so that's how we started sending our care packages. And that's still today is one of our main, main things that we do with. Yeah. You know, I wrote down, I wrote down everything you do and I I saw you've got this, this really interesting wheel on your wheel of services, call it. I I don't know what it's called, but there was a whole ton of things you did. Yeah. And maybe you can just touch on them, but the water bottles, the respite care, family support, resource center, the package. I'm guessing that's the packing or the pack parties. I specifically thought it was interesting that family photographer, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. I've had a couple of friends that have gone through cancer and and both survived. And one of my favorite pictures of this person Mm -hmm. is with her daughter's that someone else took it. She's a photographer, so she didn't take it, but it was mm-hmm. somebody else that took it, but it was, you know, she didn't have any hair and her daughters were there and it was just the most lovely representation of a mother's love and their kids coming in. So t- tell me about what that. Well, yeah. I mean, the greatest things. thing about all of our programs yeah. is that I didn't create them, that God walked me through cancer through that year plus of experiencing the way that the community was loving my family. And I was like, why is this happening? And we don't need this. And now I look back and I'm like, everything that I walked through was so that we could multiply it to thousands of families. So I had a friend from college, actually a girl that I coached at Messiah, who was a wedding photographer, say, Joe, let me come take your pictures. And she came and she took my pictures. I don't know if I have one sitting here, right before I started treatment. Mm-hmm. And I remember the first day I went to Penn and the doctor said, like, this is going to be really, really hard. Like, you're going to have to find things that motivate you. And how are you going to do this? And I shuffled through my super thick binder and I pulled out that picture, my four babies that Mm -hmm. that photographer had taken. And Mm -hmm. I gave it to my doctor and I said, this is why I'm going to do this. Mm -hmm. And that became just a motivation for me. So, yeah, that was where family photography came from. It was super like stake in the ground for me. Those pictures are still my favorite. You know, it's been almost, it'll be 10 years next year. Those are the best pictures that I've had taken of my family because they mark something in our lives that will never be forgotten for any of us. And it's my kid's story too. And as much as they don't remember. Yeah, like another thing that we do is our Holiday Hope program. Mm -hmm. And the year that I was sick, that Christmas Community General Hospital chose my family and did our whole Christmas. And I remember them calling and saying we were chosen. My kids were so little. I remember just being like, I was so sick. We don't need this. Like, yeah. we just want to be together. My yeah. kids are fine. We're okay. Like, we have help. We're going to, it's going to be fine. And they were like, sorry, you're already chosen. We're doing this for you. Mm-hmm. And they worked with Kevin. I was 
no part in it. He yeah. gave them little ideas of things my kids liked. And a week before Christmas, our garage was full of Christmas presents and we put them out under the tree the night before. And my kids still to this day, we show them pictures and say, that was the craziest Christmas you've ever had. You'll never have anything <laughs> like that again. But I almost said no. And instead the yes was just trust me because we walked through that whole process that now Radiant Hope multiplies. We just did 28 families this past Christmas and did their entire Christmas for them. Moms on hospice. We lost two moms during the process this year to cancer and their families still had their whole Christmas taken care of. It's a needs-based program at Radiant Hope now too. So it's not just gifts for Christmas. It's a time over the holidays where we can support a family with multiple needs that they have. So that's why we walked through that. So all the programs that Radiant Hope has were not created by Joanna. They were created by the story that I was led through and the ways that I saw the community support us so that I knew things that were supportive and helpful for a family or an individual or a mom going through cancer. So we do a lot of those things because of that. In your mission, it talks about your focus. And I was struck by one of the, you know, the, obviously the service wheels. And, mm-hmm. and there was a couple things I was struck by. One of them was we pray over each package recipient. And I thought that was so personal. And, you know, you said when your gift was delivered that she knew that when it was delivered and they were praying in that moment. Is mm-hmm. that where that came from? That is where that came from. Okay. Yeah. So we send out 40 to 50 packages a month. Okay. They're requested through our website. So we get this handful of families and individuals that are experiencing cancer. We get a little bit of their story. Sometimes people share a lot with us. Sometimes people share a teeny little piece with us. But at our leadership meetings every month, we pray over all the packages that are sent out that month. Mm-hmm. So every package that goes out is prayed over by our leadership team. And Yeah. I mean, does that make it something special? It does. We know that each one of those matters. I mean, that's my thing with that wheel that we put out is look at the impact we're making. Like, I know as the executive director, I should be driven by that. But what drives me is that one person in that one moment that you may make a difference in their life. So I'm driven by the one, not by the thousands. And I know that that one package that was sent to me started a nonprofit that's helping and encouraging with hope thousands of families. And that was actually started by Jenny Duncan and her faithfulness mm-hmm. of listening to a little inkling in her heart that said, just do this and encourage this person. And I've told her, we talk all the time. I tell her all the time, you started Radiant Hope. Your faithfulness started Radiant Hope. And so I know that some of those packages that are sent, some of those pictures, the holiday, whatever the thing is, Maybe a one and done just to encourage somebody in that moment, but it also may have a ripple effect that can be multiplied to many, many people for many, many generations. So that's what Radiant Hope is. That's so special. Um, You know, I think it's, there's a lot of good organizations out there that do a lot of good for a lot of people. But when you get the opportunity to hear someone that has devoted her life as a result of something she went through and your family went through, devoted her life to make it better, to reach out, to be purpose-driven, and to develop something that really is, you know, let's call it, you can call it a nonprofit because that's what it is, but mm-hmm. it's so much more than that. I mean, to me, like that your science says, is 
cancer community. It's a community driven, people driven thing. And it's, mm-hmm. it's such a wonderful thing for me, at least to get to hear the details on, on your life, your struggle, what you're doing on the other end. If you could talk a little bit about your kids now mm-hmm. and how this all relates to how they see life. You know, are they big sports? I, I mean, I watch a little bit. I get flashes <laughs> of everybody that's on my feet. Yeah, but yeah. tell me what this has done for your kids and the legacy that you're leaving for your children, you and Kevin. Tell me how that relates. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely been a part of their story, especially my oldest. So she was, you know, seven to nine through that time. So she does have memories of it, of actually what we went through as a family. You know what? You pair it different. When you realize that you are a steward of what God's given you and not the owner of it. And that was maybe one of the best things that came out of experiencing cancer early in my life. Like I know statistics say one out of two, almost now, used to be three, are going to experience cancer. A lot of people are experiencing that later in their life and older. I mean, at 34, there was a lot of difficulties. But having that changed life perspective at that age was a gift in itself. Maybe, you know, when people say cancer was a gift, I don't agree with that, but I agree with the gift of perspective that you receive when you receive cancer. And one of that is parenting through that. So that's a good way to put it. Cancer's not the gift, it's the perspective that cancer gives you, isn't the gift. Yeah. And that it really changes the way that you look. You know, you and my doctor at Penn, she says it's just a new lens through which you're going to look through life. Sure. And so you parent differently. You parent with open arms. Like you know that you are leading and encouraging and stewarding them on a path that God has for them and not for me. None of this is for me. So yeah, my kids have great qualities of mine and great qualities of my husband, a little mix of all and some of the negative qualities of each of us too. They're all athletes. Yeah. I think you also find so much more joy in things. I mean, maybe just my oldest daughter too, because I feel like you parent your oldest and you always are at the parenting phase of your oldest, not your youngest, but every phase that she goes through, even now, almost 10 years out, there's little things that I get to experience that I'm so grateful for because I never knew that I would be here to see them. Right. So there's a joy found in things. In the normal things of life. In the normal things of life that I look at and there's tears rolling down my face and I look around and no other parents are crying. And I'm like, I didn't know if I would ever see this. I'm here. I'm here. Yeah. And that is such a gift. So every little thing is is a miracle that I'm living and walking through. It's a miracle what God's done here with this place but with my family and my life. And I don't take any of that for granted. I don't. I live a life working in cancer care where we lose special people every day. And I mourn and grieve and lament a lot. And that's just what happens when you're in a cancer community. Yeah. So let me ask you a question. How much of what you do, now I've heard a lot of, let's call them services, how much of what you do is, would you consider on the counseling side? Now, I, I know not technically, but when somebody sits across to you that maybe is going through this and you have the chance to talk with them personally, is there an element of counseling? Is there an element of you're going to be okay? Or is there going to be an element of this is what yeah. you're going to go through? How do you handle 
knowing that not everybody is going to have a bright, shiny story. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of that. Actually, what I envision for Radiant Hope coming next, starting in 2024, is to start to have, I don't know what we would call them, not patient advocates, but something along the line of a chemo buddy or something to multiply what I do with people all the time, which is you have cancer, come and meet with us. Let us help connect you to services and things that you need. We have things we provide. We know lots of other people that are providing lots of things, but how can we start a service where we're just loving people individually one-on-one? If you've been through it, you often have a loud voice to others that are just beginning their story. So counseling, yes. I mean, I work with a ministry called Nothing is Wasted and Mm -hmm. I lead a course called Pain to Purpose. Mm -hmm. So I lead people through that course. It's basically taking people's pain and trauma and saying that there is very clearly biblically that there's going to be purpose Mm -hmm. out of this pain. Mm -hmm. Um, And it leads people through that. And I work for the ministry in the cancer-specific area of that. So I lead people through that. I lead people in our ministry through that. But a lot, honestly, Terry, when it comes down to it, like common pain points and being able to sit down with someone who's experiencing cancer and then sit with someone who can say they know can be life-changing for people. When I was young and with cancer and I looked around my community of young moms and people, there was no one I knew that was doing what I was doing. Mm. And there is so much loneliness when you feel like you're the only one that gets what you're going through. So, so much of Radiant Hope is just being the hands and feet around people to show them that we know. Everybody on my leadership team has experienced cancer, whether personally or they've been a caregiver to a parent or someone who's gone through it. So everyone's been personally touched in that way. So when we work with and walk with people through that, just being a voice of saying we know what you're going through is so safe and so much for so many people. One more question that I've kind of been pondering while we sit here. I guess it's two-part. Would you consider this organization a Christian organization. I mean, I, I always shudder a little bit when somebody says, oh, we're, I'm a Christian realtor, or I'm a Christian this, or I'm a Christian that. <laughs> yeah. Because I feel like that all of a sudden, that's that's marketing my spirituality or marketing my right. religion or marketing whatever. I, I feel like most of us go through life that are, you know, born-again believers. You, know, you should live your life that way, and you should that should speak your, your truth. Yeah. But would you consider this uh, to be a Christian organization and in the same breath, the folks that maybe don't have the same walk of faith that you have, how do you encourage them? Maybe uh, the wrong question, but how does that fit in with someone that says, yeah, I appreciate you praying for me, whatever that is. And I appreciate you giving me Bible, whatever that is. How do you approach that as a business called yeah. a business? Yeah. Uh, as a nonprofit? Yeah, that's good. So it's a lot of different ways I could answer that. I mean, first, to start off with, we're a faith-based organization, but we love Jesus and we love people. And sometimes, for me, leading this organization out into the world of cancer, we have to realize that we love Jesus first and we love people. And then whatever comes with that is what we do. We encourage people with hope. I mean, in suffering and struggle, a lot of people are going to shudder at that and they don't want to hear it. Everybody is going through something difficult and everyone has their own path. 
and kind of then head into the next part of your question. Like, it's not our job to save people. Sure. It's not our job to save the world. Joe, I have to tell myself, it's not your job to save the world. Yeah, good point. It's good point. your job to plant seeds of hope. Mm-hmm. And whatever that looks like in whatever that moment is with that person, it's not your job to change everything. It's not your job to fix everything. I mean, I walked into one of our Holiday Hope families and dropped off gifts there. And I mean, I left just the needs and then cancer Don't of some people. And I leave wanting to do everything. You can't do everything sometimes, but you can do something. And so don't let, you know, here's my maybe encouragement to people on a bigger realm in whatever you're doing is sometimes you don't have to do it all, but you can do something. So do that one next thing that you've been called to do in faith, trusting that Jesus is driving the bus and he's in charge and you're just being faithful to do your small part that you've been called to do and leave the rest to him. <laughs> That's funny. I mean, two greatest commands are, are right in your, I mean, generally your mission statement, you know, and that's, you know, love your God and love your neighbor. Yeah. And I, I don't know how you get any better than that from a mission standpoint and from what you're doing. I would assume, and maybe I'm wrong, but people going through, uh, any kind of really difficult, and we talked about it early, a little bit earlier, is that when someone's going through something so dramatic and so life-altering, mm-hmm. and in some cases, obviously, folks don't make it through, they're much more open to the Word of God. And they're much more open to the thought of, I'm at the end of my rope. I don't know what to think, mm-hmm. you know, and, and somebody's telling me that I can have hope in, in Christ. Mm-hmm. Have you run into those that have that have made decisions for Christ through this process and you've had the 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 ability to to walk through that and see that and the blessing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure I have. There's been some great stories of that. You know, just conversations with people that are shocked that you're willing to have those conversations that you care enough hmm. about them to have those conversations with them. And again, I think that just that opens up that pathway of when you know and you've been through something, I don't think enough of us realize what you've been through gives you a loud voice in encouraging others that have been through that. And there's so much that some people go through that they don't ever want to approach again or talk about or whatever, but you have such a voice of encouragement to those other people that are going through. I think that you said that at the very beginning. What did you say? What you're going through isn't for you. Like it's for other people. So to be able to walk through other people. I mean, I think the most significant thing that I would mention is the impact that we've had on caregivers Mm -hmm. that are caring for people that are going through cancer and the perspective shift that their life becomes. I often say, and I can't speak on this because it wasn't me, but Kevin's job was way harder than mine in a lot of moments. I mean, even days we'd walk into the hospital, everything was about me. You need this, you need that. Your labs say this, let's get you this. Do you need a warm blanket? (laughs) It's me. It wasn't ever him, but he was doing everything. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I sat with someone just a couple of weeks ago and I reminded them that when you're in that, God gives you the peace that passes understanding. Mm. Not all the people around you that are watching you saying, how are you going to do this? And they're looking at you and you're saying, I'm good, you guys. Yeah, God is, uh, I, I would say God is the ultimate multitasker though. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, what uh, What I have always liked to say, you know, what you're going through is not for yourself. It's generally for everybody watching. 
especially for my kids, you yeah. know, my kids, like your kids are athletes, you are athletes. And, and I always told my, my youngest son, even my oldest son, what you do out there on the field is for you to benefit in your activity, mm-hmm. but how you do it is going to affect everybody around you. Yeah. And so going through what you've gone through, what your husband's gone through, I'm com- probably two completely different experiences, but nevertheless, you know, I've met Kevin a couple times just in a professional he seems like a really put together, calm, cool, collected kind of, I got this, we're going to make it through kind of guy. I don't know if I'm right, right but that's what he seems like. Mm-hmm. And so yes. I, I think God brings people together that certainly complement each other. Yeah. And, uh, and that, that happens all the time. It's, it's funny how he does that. <laughs> yeah. 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 He gave me who I needed for yeah. sure. Yeah. And you don't know when you're married and you say those vows, like, in sickness and in health, like you don't know that in a couple of years you're going to really be yeah, tested yeah. with yeah. some of those promises Nobody that you've made. Nobody to be tested at 34 either. So, yeah. that's, you know, I didn't know my left foot from my right foot when I was 34 <laughs> years old, but to be, to have that no. put in your lap as a couple 34 year old kids with four little kids mm-hmm. is quite the experience, I'm sure. Mom and dad on both sides, what kind of response did they have to? You know, obviously mom and dad are in St. Louis, I guess. Yep. So they're a little bit farther away. Uh, yep. And, and Kevin's parents around here? Annapolis. Annapolis. Okay. Yep. Tell me about that response briefly, if you can give us a, an idea. How that- uh, yeah. Kevin's parents, super supportive and loving. You know, my mom moved in with us for oh. several months. Okay. She had to be here through my surgeries. Okay. She was here from my first surgery in August all the way through. I remember we sent her home for Christmas back to my dad. He came out and visited a few times, but she was with us for almost five months through that. I just, she had to be here and she was the type of mom that was going to be here. Yeah. Yeah. But interestingly enough, a few years before my cancer diagnosis, my dad went through cancer. Uh, He went through stage four throat cancer. Wow. He was in the ICU for over 30 days, removed a grapefruit-sized tumor out of his throat, all of his lymph nodes, lost his hearing. You know, he's yeah. he's alive now. He's doing awesome. He's in his 70s and Amazing. praise Jesus. But I will say, like, when that happened, my second little one was 10 days old when we got that diagnosis. Mm. And again, these are the things that you go through where you think this is it, right? You think, okay, God, this is my hard thing. You hear people share their testimony and you're like, I don't have that testimony. Mine is so whatever. Like, when is that hard thing going to happen? Like, we're all kind of waiting for the ball to drop. Like, this is too good to be true. I thought, this is it. Like, this is going to be my difficulty. My dad is going to go through this. This is really hard. It was really hard on our family, obviously. Yeah, he was sick for like a year two chemo radiation, the whole thing. So the day that I got cancer and called my dad to tell him that I had to do it too, like my greatest hero and the person who I'd looked up to to be my biggest cheerleader my whole life would sit at the foot of my bed and tell me how I was going to get through some of the hardest days that were coming. Mm. Um, I remember asking him before my first brain MRI and all the scans that I was having, the PET scans and everything to determine if the cancer had metastasized past my lymph nodes before Mm -hmm. my next surgery. And he sat on the end of my bed and he said, go to your happy place. Mm -hmm. He's like, get in your mind to somewhere else. And he said, I, he was raised in Southern Virginia. And he said, Mm -hmm. I would, every time my head would enter that tube, I would go fly fishing. 
Mm. And he, I would close my eyes before I went in the tube and I would be fly fishing in the mountains in the stream. And, and so he walked me through like being in a place and this is kind of where the feather comes from. If we get ah, into the feather story. So my next question. <laughs> oh, perfect. Yeah. Is my favorite place would have been the beach. Yeah. And I had just been diagnosed with advanced yeah. Skin cancer. Yeah. Let's wait. So Let's now I'm that. mourning this whole, like, I don't want to go to the beach and I'm right. crying and I'm like, I don't know what my happy place is, dad. And like, you love fishing in the mountains and I love going to the beach and I just, I need to find a new place. So I, I was anxious about yeah. not finding that like place of healing and place I've serenity never been for that me. I need to go to. Yeah. yeah. So I'm entering the tube that day and I'm thinking like, where am I going to go? And I just felt this presence of Jesus saying, you don't need a place. I'm your place. Mm, Like you're looking for something that I'm already providing for you. And the feather came from, I will cover you with my feathers and under my wings, you will find refuge. And that day I just felt like that's where you're going to find refuge Mm -hmm. is under my wings and under my care. Mm -hmm. And so that's where the feather, and I still find like I was in church last week and I look up and there's a feather stuck in the back of the pew. <laughs> like these things happen to me all the Somebody's, time. So uh, there's always feathers. Yeah. And I know for a lot of people, feathers mean a lot of things, but that's where that came from. So yeah, my, my parents were a huge help. My dad having walked through cancer, which I thought would be the hardest actually was another thing that God was doing to prepare me to be able to get through. Yeah. I thought about the feather. That was one of the first things I thought about a long time and I couldn't figure that out. So I was, I knew it had significance. I just wasn't <laughs> yeah. quite sure, but that's Everything amazing. Everything does. It does. Yeah. yeah. I didn't make uh, any of it up. Yeah. So I guess I just want, I want to thank you for telling your story again. You know, we don't know each other very well, if, if at all, other than the, the real estate transaction we went through, <laughs> yes. but for you to sit down and, and really, you know, to share some pretty personal things is is really a nice thing for you to do. We really appreciate that. I wanted to give you the opportunity to also, you know, share your faith and because it's the same faith I have. And uh, I'm always of the stance that I can't deny God because, you know, he says, if you deny me, I'll deny you. So I don't, I don't ever deny mm-hmm. him in any format, but I wanted to thank you for that. It's been uh, certainly a pleasure, but my, I guess my last thing is if people want to get, I know one of the things I read that is you want to expand Radiant Hope into different states. I think I read that. Is that still your direction? Yeah, well, we have things to work on Yeah, first. And, we have plans. Yeah, and how can how can the average Joe, and maybe not the so average Joe, let's call it a business person that's got a pocket full of money that needs a mm-hmm. great place for it to go, how can they get involved and and what's the best way for them to to really hear your story outside of something like this and yeah. and maybe donate time or money or whatever? Yeah. Well, the greatest thing is I just shared with you Joanna's story, mm-hmm. which is the story of Radiant Hope. But what is cool to see now in the seat that I sit in is that this is becoming a lot of other people's stories, not just Joanna's stories. So now we've created this thing where other people can make an impact. And a lot of what we're seeing now is if you've been through something difficult, if you've been through cancer, you can be a part of us and find a place to give back and serve the community that you've loved or were a part of. So that is the cool thing to see from my seat. I mean, we need lots of volunteers to do our work. What do you do with the volunteers? I know we, we talked a little bit about it. It's, it's most of that 
internal packing or do you, you have people go to the hospitals? You have people go to the cancer units. Those we used to before COVID that's changed. Yeah, yeah. So now we're just in a little niche of coming out of COVID acquiring this new community center, which way are we going to go now in the future? We're still and, trying to figure out some of those things. Yeah. I mean, we're like. still like, we're still baby, baby. And this place is booming. Yeah. Cancer is growing. That's not going to slow down. Yeah. So we're going to multiply because cancer is going to multiply. So we need to pray that you go out of business for the right reasons. Though. I mean, that would be great. I would <laughs> yeah. be fine and oh, goodness. wholly content with yeah. that. But yeah, we do pack parties so people can host a pack party where they pack our packages. We provide some of the stuff. We give them a time to sign up. They provide the rest, pack our boxes. We ship them out. How much is a pack? Generally speaking, if I wanted to give money, how much does it cost for me to put together one pack? Yeah, a package we say is about fifty dollars. Fifty bucks. Shipping's getting more expensive, mm-hmm. but it's about fifty bucks for about us 50 bucks. to send everyone. We send forty to fifty out a month. Yeah, right. Of those, we do like our families for holiday hope are about fifteen hundred to two thousand dollars per family. For okay. needs. You did 28 of those. Is that what you told me? We did 28 of those awesome. this past year. Um, that will continue to grow. So, I mean, now we have a place like this was a big step, but we have rent to pay and we have bills right. to pay. You know, right. That's new. So, there's a lot of ways that people can get involved and help. We hope, I mean, we are and hope to continue to grow by hiring um, employees. Right now, my leadership team is all volunteer based okay. and all of our volunteers on our leadership team lead volunteer teams to their family photography or Mm -hmm. their packing or whatever that they're doing. So we're, we're heavily volunteer based. That's great. That's great. Well, I, uh, I've learned a lot about your organization, a lot about you, Joanna. I want to thank you very much. This is going to be something that in our podcast, we're going to do these kinds of things that are inspirational in nature. We've got a few of those coming up along with our business people, our athletes, and some of the other types of, let's call it normal inspiration. But I enjoy this so much. It's really nice to be part of your heart for a moment and to hear where your heart is going, where your family's going, and what this organization is going. So if you want to get involved with Radiant Hope, it's his radianthope.org, right? Yep. Hisradianthope.org, and that'll be in the description down below in the uh, in this episode. So go to that website, take yeah. a look at what they're doing. There's nice pictures of feathers there. There's nice pictures <laughs> of the service wheel, and there's lots of information that uh, is where I got most of my information today. And uh, so I just want to thank you, Joanna, for taking the time. I know you're you're busy, and this has been a delight for me. So thanks for tuning in this week from the grind to growth to greatness. We tuned in today with Joanna Denstedt from Radiant Hope. The real name is Radiant Hope, but the website is hisradianthope.org. And uh, tune in to our next episode, which will be next week. Thanks for listening in. Take care. You've been listening to the Grind to Growth to Greatness podcast. Our passion is to talk to the brightest entrepreneurs, CEOs, creators, athletes, anyone who's made it, and dive in to their struggles, their successes, and their secrets. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you did, make sure to like, rate, and review. We'll be back soon, but in the meantime, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at grind to growth to greatness. See you next time.